Amen. Scripture reading for this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 to chapter 6, verse 5. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are in the home stretch of our study of Galatians, and uh, Paul is ending the letter by getting very concrete in the ways in which we are to love one another. Back in chapter uh, 5, verse 13, Paul said that we are to devote ourselves to one another in love. He, he uses the language of, of slavery even, to enslave yourself in love to another person. And then here he gets specific. What does that look like in action among God's people? Now, why does he need to do that? Well, the answer is because the inevitable outcome of the false teaching that had been embraced by these Christians in Galatia was conflict. It's not hard to imagine how that could be. The false teachers had come in and the churches, the Christians in Galatia had embraced this false teaching. The false teaching that said you need to look to your religious performance in order to be right with God. Now, what happens when people start focusing on their own religious performance? They start comparing themselves to other people, and that leads to conflict. That person only comes to church once a month. I'm here every week. That person knows the Bible so well. I don't even know how to find Galatians let alone what it's about. My kids have more Scripture memorized than 90% of the people in this congregation. Right? My marriage doesn't stack up to their marriage. I doubt that anyone serves the Lord as faithfully as I do in so many unseen ways. I doubt that anyone struggles with sin as much as I do in so many unseen ways. This comparison that can either be from a, pra- a posture of you know, pride because you're doing so well or, or utter defeat because you're, you know you're struggling, in the end is a, the result of basing your standing with God on your own religious performance and not that of Jesus Christ, and that's never a solo affair. It, it always leads to comparison and either feeling as though you are greater than or less than those around you. That kind of thinking leads to conflict. It leads to the very kind of provocation, envy, biting, and devouring in which relationships and entire churches are in self-destruct mode. None of the beautiful, winsome, unrivaled gospel culture that Paul is calling us to enjoy, has been calling us to enjoy throughout this letter, and is yet again here at the end. So that's, that's one reason why Paul ends this letter by getting very concrete in terms of what love looks like in, 
in the family of God. But another reason is because of what he's just said about bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So back in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, that fruit, where, where is it most evident? Where is it seen? Seen in relationships. Like the indicator that you're bearing fruit is not, hey, trust me, everybody, I'm bearing fruit. It's, it's as you're actually in relationship with one another that, that that fruit is evident, that fruit is seen. I love the way John Stott put it. The first and greatest evidence of our being filled with the Spirit is not some private mystical experience of our own, but our practical relationships of love with other people. So the fruit that is born as we walk by the Spirit is seen as, as we walk together. But do we? Do we walk together as a church? Can we, can we check the box next to bear one another's burden? Can we realistically say that anyone who is caught in any transgression is gently restored in Grace Church? Does our walk together give any evidence that we are, in fact, walking by the Spirit, following the example of Christ, fulfilling the law of love? Or again, to put it another way, do we enjoy the kind of rich gospel fellowship, transformative gospel culture, a culture in which sinners are gently restored that Paul invites us to enjoy in this passage? And if not, why not? Are we too proud? Are we too afraid? Are we too busy? Paul is casting a vision for gospel culture as he closes out this letter, and it's beautiful. May it be said of Grace Church that we embody the love that is called for in this passage by by humbly coming alongside and restoring those who are caught in any sin, looking to the day when Christ returns and our joy will be made complete. So to that end, there are three things that I want us to take to heart from this passage. The first is this, the love that mends. Paul tells us in this passage about a love that mends. So the love that mends. Second, the sin that destroys. There's a very clear caution here, a warning about the kind of sin that destroys gospel culture. And then third and finally, the wounds that heal. Ultimately, of course, the wounds of Jesus Christ. So the love that mends, the sin that destroys, and then the wounds that heal. But first, let's pray. Father, as we come before you now this morning, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit, that we might um, take this word in, that we might comprehend it, that it, that it might, O oh Lord, be something that transforms us, that we might be transformed evermore into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. So first, the love that mends, and there's a, there's a general principle, and then there's a specific example that Paul gives us in this passage. So first, we'll look at the general principle. We see it in verse 2. Paul says there in chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So bear one another's burdens. Two assumptions there, right? Very simple, very much on the surface. First, we all have burdens, 
We're to bear one another's burdens. And second, we are not meant to bear our burdens alone. We all have burdens, and we're not meant to bear them alone. This idea of a burden, it's not, it's not hard to picture. It, you know, you, you have a heavy load that's too difficult to lift up and carry yourself. And so someone has to get close. They have to come near in order to help you lift up that burden and carry it where it needs to go. So what does that look like in relationships? Well, it can be very, it can be very practical, It could be that you are just helping someone who doesn't have a car get to a doctor's appointment. That's coming near in order to help bear a burden that someone else is carrying. It could be a home repair. I had to call a friend. I was trying to switch out a toilet yesterday. And when I got the toilet off the floor, it did not look anything like Bob Vila's website said it was going to look. And so I had to call a, call a lifeline, call a friend. What am I looking at here? You know, thank the Lord for FaceTime, right? Bearing a load, helping out. It could be watching someone's child, right? Coming alongside and watching the child of a, of a single parent who needs to go off to work or do something, right? It's, it's, it can be very practical like that. But it also can be just coming alongside to sit with one who's struggling emotionally for some reason. Paul tells us to weep with those who weep. So it's coming alongside to bear some of the burden of their sorrow. It could be coming alongside just to sit with them in their loneliness. As you alleviate their loneliness by being present with them, you're bearing some of the burden of their loneliness. We're called to bear one another's burdens. Now that really challenges us in our idolatry. Remember, an idol is anything that you've elevated to a place of importance that's greater than God. They are the things that we're willing to sacrifice anything and everything to obtain. It's become your highest good. You'll give anything to have your heart's desire. You'll give time. You'll give money. You'll give energy. You'll sacrifice relationships. You'll sacrifice this call to burden-bearing because you just don't have time. Perhaps, not always, but perhaps because you're giving time to something that is really not an ultimate thing. So there's something there that we need to consider as well. If if you say, I would love to help bear your burden, but I just don't have the time, you're missing actually what Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 is calling you to do which is bear some of that burden. If you say, I'd love to help you, but I just don't have the time, what you're saying is I don't have any space for any of your burden to come onto mine, onto my shoulders. I can't afford to get near you to help you in that way. Now, as we do bear one another's burdens, Paul tells us we fulfill the law of Christ. That's the same language that he used back in In chapter 5, verse 14, when he said, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus brought these two ideas, this idea of fulfilling the law of love and fulfilling the law of Christ. He brought them together for us in John chapter 13, when he said, A new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That fruit of the Spirit that is love that we saw back in chapter 5, verse 22, that's being born in you as you walk in the Spirit, as you keep in step with the Spirit, is itself, that love is the evidence 
that you are keeping in step with the Spirit. So general, general principle, we're all called to burden-bearing. Why? We all have burdens, and none of us are meant to carry them alone. But then he gets into this specific example in verse 1. Let's read that together real quick. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Um, there's just lots of words there that we just need to break down. So let's do that real quick so we can make sure we understand what Paul's saying in verse 1. First, what does he mean by any transgression? Well, we get a clue contextually when you look back at the passage that we considered last week when Paul said in chapter 5, verse 19 and following, uh, let's pick up in the second half of verse 19. Um, well, no, works of the flesh, verse 19, are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So we saw that last week. We considered, you know, the sexual sins, the religious sins, the relational sins, the sins of excess, and the fact that Paul mentions any number of other sins, you know, kind of a catch-all category, those that are notorious sins, those that are maybe, as Jerry Bridges says in his book, acceptable sins, sins that on the surface don't seem all that bad but are sin nonetheless. In, in any of these things, a person caught in any transgression, Paul says in this passage. So let's take that word caught. What does that word caught mean? Does it mean gotcha? Like somebody has caught you in some transgression. That's not what it means. It actually means that the transgression has caught you, or you've been caught up in the transgression. It's not that somebody has caught you. It's that you, in a sense, have been caught by it. There's an element of surprise included in this word as well. Now, you're still culpable, you're still responsible, but you've been caught. There's an example I can give you um, a silly one, uh, but, you know, it helps to prove the point. A couple weeks ago, I was in the parking lot of Walgreens, and I was, I was listening to something. I can't remember if it was a podcast or music, but I, I'd pulled into a parking space, and I was finishing up listening to whatever I was listening to, and then, you know, it was time to go into the store. Song was over, whatever, and I opened the door, and there was a woman pulling in with her car, like, into the spot next to me. Like, it could have been bad. I looked at her, and she went, <laughs> and I looked at her, and I went, <laughs> listen, I would have been responsible for that. I'm the one that swung the door open without even bothering to look to see if, you know, maybe someone might want to pull into that empty space next to me, right? But I would have been caught, in a sense. I, I, it would have caught me by surprise, even though I was still responsible for it. That's, that's the idea when Paul talks about being caught up in some transgression. Such a person is to be restored, Paul says. Now, what does that word restore mean? Um, that same word is used in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1 when it talks of the disciples mending their nets. That's the idea of restoration. It's, it's mending. The person who's caught in some transgression, any transgression, needs to be Mended. Now, what is it that ultimately needs to be mended? Well, it could be any number of relationships that have been hurt as a result of the sin. Uh, it could be some situation that needs to be rectified as a result of the sin. But ultimately, what is being mended is that person's walk with Christ. That's what needs to be 
restored. There's sin. There needs to be repentance. And we're all inclined to think that we don't need to repent. And so we need someone to come alongside in our sin and call us to repent that our relationship with the Lord might be restored. That because we have fallen out of step with the Spirit, we might be restored in order to keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul says in chapter 5, verse 25. Now, who's called to do the mending? Paul says, those who are spiritual. Again, back in verse one, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Who are the spiritual? Well, in one sense, that's every Christian, right? You, you don't become a Christian without being filled with the Spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 3 you know, to Nicodemus, a person must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. We don't birth ourselves. Jesus says, you know, we don't know where the Spirit blows, but, but where that happens, where the Spirit comes and brings regeneration to a person who, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, is dead in their transgression and sin, there is then life. The Holy Spirit indwells that person. Paul talks about this back in Galatians chapter 3, that we're given the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption. So in a sense, every Christian is spiritual in the sense of being filled with the Spirit. But Paul does have specific Christians in mind, namely those who are keeping in step with the Spirit, those who haven't fallen out of step with the Spirit, like the person who's been caught in some transgression, the one who is bearing the very fruit with which the sinning person is called to be restored, that fruit of gentleness. Right? So the spiritual that Paul's referring to is those Christians from among all the Christians who are filled with the Spirit, who are walking in step with the Spirit, bearing that fruit of gentleness that they might bring restoration. So there's the picture. Everyone bearing the burdens of, uh, of each other, every Christian doing that. And when anyone falls into any particular sin, those who are spiritual, those who are themselves not fallen into sin, but keeping in step with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit that is gentleness, coming alongside to mend, to mend that person's walk with the Lord. Call them back into walking in accord with the Spirit of God. But let's talk, secondly, here about the sin that destroys, that Paul warns us of in this passage. Now, again, I said in the, in the introduction that, that Paul is calling us to a beautiful, beautiful vision of gospel culture here. It's an apostolic vision of gospel culture because it's not just coming from Paul. It comes from James and John as well. <clears throat> Paul has been emphasizing this culture of restoration, right, where a sinner is being restored, being mended. James and John emphasize a culture of confession, and so James says in five, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. John, in 1 John 1.7, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What a, what a vision for what church can be. You know, those who are, are caught up in sin confessing their sin. Those, those who are not at that moment caught up in sin, restoring with grace the person who's caught up in sin. What a, what a glorious picture, this picture of confession and restoration, of walking in the light, unafraid, that as you do so, you'll be met with condemnation, 
but rather will be met by someone seeking to bring restoration in your walk with the Lord. Honest confession, gentle restoration, transparency with sin, about sin met with grace, a people without pretense, radically vulnerable, lovingly bold. Where does that happen in a church? Does it happen here on Sunday morning as we're all together, you know, shoulder to shoulder or looking at the back of somebody's head facing me? No. It doesn't happen here in the service. It happens when we're perhaps, it begins to happen over coffee and back. Hey, I need to talk to you this week about something. I'm really caught up in something. Can we, can we talk? The potential for that happens in growth groups. The potential for that happens in the, the men's and the women's uh, fellowship gatherings. As you get to know someone and say in that kind of a context, you know, can we get together this week for coffee? It happens in those kinds of one-on-one or or triads, groups of three or four. As people come together, most wisely, men with men, women with women, come together in order to talk about some particular transgression, some particular sin. They confess that. It, It comes out of the darkness into the light. And those people bring restoration, seek to mend their walk with the Lord. That is the picture that the church is invited to that we can't experience if this is all we have. So if you're not in a growth group, (laughs) if you're not attending the men's fellowship or the women's fellowship, if you're not in in Sunday school, because it can happen there, right? And you're sitting there in a Christian ed discipleship class and you're listening to someone else talk, maybe with a a measure of transparency, even as they're wrestling with whatever's being taught, and you think, "I, I need to spend some time with that person. All these are environments in which those kinds of relationships can form, and the church can begin to experience the depth of gospel culture, that which moves, you know, as I've said before, by God's grace, moves us from a a Lutchworth experience of gospel culture, which is beautiful, to a Grand Canyon experience of gospel culture, which is incomparable. That's what God is calling us to. What has the power to destroy that kind of culture? In a word, pride. 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 Look back at verse 26 of chapter 5 with me. Paul says there, let us not become conceited. That word for conceit could also be translated vainglory. It means to have an opinion of yourself that is ultimately empty, that's vain, that's false, which is why he says in verse 3 of chapter 6, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives Himself. You, you think that you're full of glory, when in reality you're empty of it. Here's what we need to see. The same idolatry that can keep you from helping those that are in need can also cause, also cause you to look down on those who are in need. You've elevated yourself above them, even though you have no reason To do so. And there's nothing more tragic than a church that is filled with people who are caught up in that kind of sin. People who are convinced they're in step with the Spirit. That's that's vaingloriousness, potentially. I'm so sure I'm keeping in step with the Spirit. I can see how terrible those people are. I must be, therefore, keeping in step with the Spirit. But in reality, are filled with contempt. I love this phrase, sensoriously sniffing out the sinners that are in their midst. 
I made that one up. No one's going to quote me, but it just felt kind of cool when I wrote it. That could be fried. Eh. <laughs> Censoriousness, right? What a word. That's a $50 word for, you know, meaning that you're just quick to judge. You just, like, that's just, you live for that, for judging other people harshly. And sniffing out, ooh, I think of vultures when I think of that. Turkey vultures, they're ugly. Do you know what turkey vultures can do? They can smell carrion, something dead, from hundreds of feet in the air and up to a mile away. I've heard as low as like three parts per trillion, which is not a lot. And, and you know, people can be like that. Christians can be like that. <laughs> you smell that? I smell sin. Do you smell it? Right? It's ugly when that happens. And here's the thing. The moment that you say, I'm so glad I'm not censorious like that other person, you become censorious. <laughs> it's, we're, it can destroy a church when we, when we become like that. And so Paul has to warn us here in this passage. Verse 4, he says, test your own work. Let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, what, is, what does he mean there, okay? Test his own work. Against what standard? Against the law of Christ. Against the call to fulfill the law of love. That's what you're testing. You're, you're not measuring yourself over against someone else's behavior or standard or performance. You're measuring yourself over against that of Jesus Christ. Your reason then to boast will be in yourself alone. Now remember, when Paul uses the word boast, he can use it in a you know, pejorative sense, but also in a very positive sense, like he does in chapter 6, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that sense of finding your, your confidence in. Finding your confidence in the cross of Christ in that place in verse 14. To boast in yourself alone, that is, the fruit that's being born in your life, which is the Spirit's fruit. As you keep in step with the Spirit, as you follow the Spirit's lead. In other words, it's not fruit that you have produced, it's fruit that you have born. And then finally, he says, uh, not in your neighbor, right? So boast in the fruit, rest in the fruit that God is producing in you, not in your neighbor. In other words, not playing the comparison game. And then in verse 5, he points to the final day. For each will have to bear his own load. Martin Luther said of that verse, uh, these words are forceful enough to frighten us thoroughly so that we do not yearn for vainglory. Paul's pointing to the final judgment. If, if you want to avoid conceit and contempt, you could do far worse than picture yourself standing before the Lord at the final judgment needing to give an account for every careless word, which is Matthew 12, 36. So again, summary of this point now. We've got this apostolic vision of gospel culture of people that are mending and those who need mended, of confession and restoration. But if even, of, if even those who are called to mend themselves need mending, what hope do we have? Right? With Paul in Romans 7, who will rescue us from this bondage of death? That's where, finally, we need to look at the wounds that heal. We must look to the wounds of Jesus Christ. Who is the ultimate burden bearer 
It's Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is the one who restored you gently? Look, look back with me at verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If you are a Christian, who is it that restored you? Gently. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He did not quench your faintly burning wick. He restored you. And by his grace, he continues to restore you. Because who is it who's ultimately doing the work of restoration through those who are coming alongside to speak his words of truth, his words of comfort, pointing you to he alone who does the healing. Because as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. So when, not if, You fall out of step with the Spirit by being caught in any, and I mean any, transgression. Confess it. Confess it to God. Confess it to someone else. Come out of the darkness into the light so that we can have fellowship with one another and rejoice, as John says in 1 John 1, 7, in the reality of the sin-cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are the one hearing the confession, Restore, restore gently. Mend the one broken by pointing to the wounds of the one who alone can heal. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would let this word sink deeply into our hearts. Lord, we are also prone to isolation. And, and Lord, you call us out into the open. You call us to be fully open and transparent before you. And, and, and why would we not? Because you know us better than we know ourselves. And knowing us, you still sent your son to die in our place. And so, Lord, help us to, to open up our, ourselves to you, to, to be honest with you about everything going on inside of us, and then, and then cry out for your healing grace to come into us. But Lord, you've you've also invited us to bear one another's burdens, to to do this work of confession and restoration on the horizontal plane. And so we ask that you would help us to do just that, that we might more greatly and, and, and deeply enjoy this culture that your gospel produces among us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.